Well, this morning my text will be on 1 John. And uh, on Wednesday nights in our college group called Basic, and perhaps somebody's here that's of that age and doesn't attend on Wednesday nights, I'd invite you on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock outside here in Trailer B1. We have a group of young adults from post-high school through 29, and, uh, and we just have a great time together. And we've been going through 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. We did 1 John, took, as they tease me, I usually only did three or four verses done a night. So we, we were there for a little while, and, uh, and then we did a little break and did uh, a look at angels, and then we did 2 John, and then we did a little break and looked at fallen angels, and now we're in 3 John. So when I knew I was um, asked to preach and had the opportunity, 1 John has been pulling at my heart. Last week I got to open God's Word at Bakerton, so... And in the fall, I preached at Bakerton before Bob Iwig headed over there. And we started 1 John, and, and I did one sermon over there on the first four verses of 1 John, and then two, two more sermons on the rest of the first chapter. And today, I am doing the whole first chapter and two verses of the second in one sermon. So we'll see how we do. But it's interesting... Especially for those of you who like to take notes, I'm going to give you my three points right up front, and then we'll go back and dive into them a little bit deeper. Uh, my, my thoughts this morning is about conviction, and my hope is that you will leave here today with either a new conviction that you haven't held about God, or a deeper conviction about God, and specifically about light. And we're going to look at a conviction about God is light. And we're going to look at a conviction that you are to walk in the light. And we're going to look at a conviction that you are to hold on to the light. And as I was preparing, I remembered when I was a boy, and I couldn't remember for sure, I grew up in Ohio, if it was in Ohio at the Ohio Caverns, or if it was later in Virginia at the Luray Caverns, but I remember as a family, we went to one of these caverns. And as a family, we would always take vacations, and some years, if we couldn't afford a big vacation, we would do a day trip here or there, and this was one of those day trips where we went to the caverns. And I remember um, learning, you know, about the stalactites and the stalagmites, and I just, I get them confused, but I think tight is the ceiling it holds tight too, but regardless, we went there, and and it's kind of neat to go and see those things. And, and uh, what I remember about this particular trip was we, we go in there and we get our tickets to be able to go in the caverns. And, of course, we have to wait for the next group to go. So they have you just mill around in their gift store for a while. I'm not sure why, but, you know. So finally, the next group was ready to go, and we had two guides uh, one guy would be in front and one guy would be in the back. And they opened the door, so it's this big metal door that was there. And it revealed these steps that headed down into the ground. So we started down these steps and down these steps. And finally get down to the landing. And you turn and then there's a whole other flight of steps. So we head down those steps. And even as a kid, I can remember thinking, man, we paid money for this. They should have at least gotten an elevator. We finally get to the bottom, 
and it opens up into the caverns there, you know, and you got that, that musty smell because of the moisture, and there's water around, and it kind of opens up, and they have this roped-off path. And they got the light strung there, so you can see, and some lights out in, and, and we start walking down the path, and they start ex- describing some of these different formations, and they talk about how this one looks like an owl. I didn't see it. I just saw something there. And these other, other things. Uh, sometimes I could make out what they thought, and, and other times I thought there was something different there. And it was cool seeing the reflection off the water and different things. And So we finally get to this central point where they stop, and they tell us about how deep we are in the ground and how the temperature is always the same temperature there, and that at this place there is an absence of light. And to prove their point, they shut the lights off. And your eyes will never adjust because there is no light to adjust to. And I began thinking, what seemed like forever, because fear seemed to step in pretty quickly. And I started waving my hand in front of my face to see if I could actually see it. And I couldn't see it. And what I do remember is I was waving so hard and getting closer, I finally hit myself in the nose. (laughs) So that's kind of ingrained in my head. I thought, that's wild. And then I got to thinking, I don't like this. And then I got to thinking, I'm glad my father is with me. And then they turned the lights on, and I was really glad they did that. Light. There is something good about light. So my convictions, sir, today to start you about light. A conviction about light. Now, conviction is different than a belief. You can hold to a belief, and it may or may not affect your actions. But if you have a conviction, a conviction will affect how you act, what you do, and what you think about. A conviction is deeper. Satan believes in Jesus, but he does not have a conviction that Jesus is going to win in the end. There's a difference in a belief and a conviction. So my point this morning is for you to deepen your conviction about what this, pa- this particular passage has to say about God and its effects. Well, in the beginning, in the first four verses here, and we're going to read through the first section, we're going to see the first four is the introduction, or the case. So read with me, if you will. Follow along as I read First John chapter 1, and the first couple of verses of chapter 2. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, 
our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let's pray. Fathers, we open your word today. We just ask that you bless it. Father, we thank you for your character, for being a God of light. Father, help us to see you more clearly, to deepen our understanding and our conviction of who you are, that it will affect our other convictions, that we would be obedient to your word, and that we would hold to your word. Father, help us each to make sure that we are right with you today. Open our ears. Help us to apply your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, the point that I see in the opening or the first four verses of 1 John is that he is saying that if you are justified because of Jesus, you should have joy. If you are justified because of Jesus, you should have joy. And since he's driving at trying to have a conviction and understanding of who God is, that word conviction has an interesting note, especially for Christians. We think about being convicted of our sins. But conviction is something we hold to, something that we're going to drive us to have an action, something that we have been convinced is true and will affect our change. In a court of law, you're looking to have a criminal convicted. In order for him to be convicted, there has to be a case laid out beyond a reasonable doubt for them to come to the terms of a conviction. Well, John's laying out a case for us at the beginning for you to hold to this conviction that God is light. First, he starts with his authority in this area. And I think it's interesting how he proves this. I grabbed a clementine. I have a tendency to want to call it an orange, but 
I've been corrected. There's a difference. So this is a clementine. How do you know that this clementine is real? Well, I'm holding it. I know it's real because I can feel it. I can smell it. I could open it up and bite into it and taste it. There's a lot of evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that I will tell you this is not a figment of our joint imaginations, but this is real. Here, Bill. Nice catch. Now Bill can feel it and touch it. And he can testify to it being real. At this point in the scripture, all the disciples have passed on, been killed, deceased. John is the last remaining disciple, apostle of Jesus. And he is writing to the church who has suffered a bit of a split in that there's been false teaching going on about who Jesus is. And he's writing to the Christians, to the church, to strengthen them and their resolve to stand for God and who God is. And he starts with, I heard him. He heard him. He listened to the Lord himself. He was instructed by Jesus. God is real. Jesus is real because he heard him. He also saw him. He physically saw him on a daily basis, but he also saw his work and the things that he was engaged in and and how he reacted and interacted with people. He was not an apparition. He saw him. God is real because John saw him. He also looked upon him. Now, looked upon is a little different than saw. Saw is that physical see him. Looked upon has a term of length to it. That he didn't disappear. We went to sleep. He was laying there. I woke up. He was still right there. There was a length of time of which I was able to look upon him. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't an aberration. He didn't disappear. God is real. He didn't vanish. And he touched him. He was not a spirit. Quickly, I'm going to turn to Luke chapter 24. Read 36 to 39. This is the account of the risen Savior. After Jesus resurrected, was resurrected, and he showed himself to the disciples. He appeared to the disciples. And it says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do you doubt? Arise in your hearts. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. John touched him. He touched him before his death. And he touched him after his resurrection. 
John was a witness. He heard him, he saw him, he looked upon him, and he touched him. So if you're justified because of Jesus, you should have joy, is his point. And his truth to that, is this true, is the fact that he knows who he was because of his eyewitness account, touching him, seeing him before and after his resurrection. He's seen it, he testifies to it, so now he proclaims it. His point is Jesus is God. Jesus was man, fully man in the flesh, as he was God. And Jesus wants to share his life, his eternal life, with you. And through this eternal life, we have fellowship. Fellowship. Fellowship is an interesting word. It's kind of almost a church word. We don't hear it outside of church too much that we have fellowship. We have friendships. Friends and fellowship is a little different. I can have a lot of friends, and I can have close friends who are not saved. But because of the depth of the understanding of where I come from and where I'm going and what my life is about, I can only have true fellowship with somebody else who is saved because of Jesus Christ, the bond that he has, the bond that he joins us together in. And what a joy it is to have that fellowship with somebody else, that partnership, that bond. And that's where the joy comes in for the joy to be complete. And John here wants us to make sure that we understand that he's saying our joy, having a a biblical view of joy, our joy. That's his joy he's talking about. Because there is a joy from Christians when somebody gets saved, when somebody else acknowledges Jesus Christ and has their sins forgiven. We are joyful with them in that. And if God works through you, to allow you to have any part of helping that person come to that, there's even a more special joy in that. It was all of God, none of us, but God worked through us. There's a great joy that comes from that. And there's a fellowship in Jesus Christ. And he has great joy in them standing for the gospel, standing for the truth, understanding who God is. And also there's a personal joy for those who have their sins forgiven. What a joy it is to be right before a holy God. Because what he's trying to point out is a biblical view of Christ, that God is light. A biblical view that he was real, that he was the Son of God. A biblical view of Christ leads to a biblical view of sin. And a biblical view of sin will lead to confession of sin. And confession of sin will lead to repentance from sin, turning away. And a repentance from sin leads to justification. So when you're justified because of Jesus, that leads to joy. So that's his beginning of his case to lay out why you need to have these convictions. To lay the groundwork and the framework for understanding who God is and who Jesus is. And that he was real. So the first conviction that he wants somebody to hold is that God is light. You see, it does matter about having a conviction of the character of God and that Jesus was God and that he walked on the earth. As John Piper once wrote, many are willing to believe in Christ if he remains a merely spiritual reality. But when we preach 
that Christ has become a particular man in a particular place, issuing particular commands and dying on a particular cross, exposing the particular sins of our particular lives, then the preaching ceases to be acceptable for many. Because we can believe until it affects change. And that's where it becomes a conviction. That God is light. It's interesting that he didn't say truth. He was talking about the truth and then he comes here and he says God is light. Well, truth and light are a little bit interchangeable in this regard. Light shows the truth, reveals what was otherwise hidden. See, if there's no God, then there's no truth. If there's no light, then there's no truth. Knowing God means knowing truth. And that brings joy and hope. But in verse 5 here, it says, He was light. God is light. And there is no darkness in Him. Well, let's think about light. What does that mean to be light? Well, it means you can avoid some problems. It means you don't stumble over the rocks as you're walking. It means you don't walk into a tree because you don't see it. It means you don't walk off the edge of a cliff. Because in darkness, there's danger. Because you can lose your way. Because it prevents you from getting to your goal. Light is good. It helps you reach what you're after. It exposes the danger. You get your hope and your joy able to reach your goal. Because God is light, and in Him is no darkness. Because God is light, there is unlimited blessing in His unlimited brightness. Because God is light, He provides the pathway to perfection. And because God is light, His light will give you life. God is light. Well, in His light, you will not stumble over the rocks, you will not walk into a tree, and you will not go over the cliff heading into hell. That light of hope and joy, providing that, because darkness is despair. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness. This is the message that John has seen and has heard and is now proclaiming is this conviction about the character of God, that God is light, and everything good that encompasses. And we should never think of God in another direction. And there is no darkness in Him, no hint of wrong. He is just, He is right, He is holy, He is set apart from everything else. And as we develop a conviction of God's character, that will drive us to our second point, which is a conviction that we need to walk in the light. And we see that in verses 6 and 7. Walking. Compares it to walking in the darkness, the opposite. What does it mean? Understand that he is writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. He is writing to people who profess to be saved. And he's talking to them about walking in darkness. He's not talking to them about not being saved, about losing their salvation. 
because that's secure. But we still do sin, and we have a desire towards that, and we have to be careful that we are working at what God would have us do and not being controlled by the darkness or the desires of the world instead of a desire for God. You see, only a person who is blind to God's light would desire things more than he desires God. There's a story by John Piper that I think illustrates this point very well. It's a story about a big, hairy, man-eating monster. You see, there was this room, and in this room there was no light. Could not see anything. And there was a man in the room. And the man in the room, trying to find his way, reaches out his hands. And on the one side, he feels a soft, furry, warm, inviting thing. And on the other hand, he feels a sharp, cold, uninviting. So he cuddles up next to that nice, soft, warm, furry thing. And the lights come on. And the lights reveal what he cuddled up to was a big, hairy, man-eating monster. And what was over here was Jesus Christ standing with his sword, ready to save his life from that man-eating monster. Sin is like that. It wants us to be in darkness so that we have this desire to go to it so it can eat us up. But when we walk in God's light, we see things the way God sees them. It exposes that sin and we can go to Christ where we will have peace and security and salvation. Don't walk in darkness. Walk in the light. John 3.19 says that the light came into the world. But men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Walking in darkness, we must fight against it. Look to the light. Find God's word to give you the light. Walking in the light is the opposite of darkness. We see things as God sees them. We are then controlled by a desire to obey God. To see God's glory. To better understand who God is. This world has nothing to offer compared to what God has. So we need to be born again. And we need to walk in that light. And walking in that light, obeying God's word, allows us to have great fellowship with one another. Yes, we have fellowship with God. And we have forgiveness because he justifies us. And we have this ongoing work of salvation in our lives. Ongoing work of sanctification. um, Changing us to be more like Christ. Putting off the desires and the things of the flesh, and putting on Christ-likeness. Learning what he has to say and obeying, a desire to obey it. It doesn't mean that you will never sin. It doesn't mean that you won't fall and make mistakes. But there is a desire to obey. 
there is a desire to do. And if we have a conviction that God is light, the character of God and who he is, then you will have a conviction to walk in the light, to obey his word and how it applies to your life. Not merely believe that God is good and not let it affect your life, but to have a conviction about God so it does affect your life. And then we have fellowship. He is not talking again about losing your salvation because John, the gospel of John, was written so that you would know who Christ is, his deity, that he came into the world to save, to be saved, so that you can have salvation. The book of 1 John was written to the Christians so that you can be sure that you are saved. And he gives them some tests of this salvation, a way of knowing that they're saved. One of those things is that they need to confess their sins. Another thing is they need to have a desire to walk in obedience with God. Because apart from God, you do not have that desire. And another desire is to have fellowship, to love one another. These are things that should be evidenced in your life because of your salvation. We should have a conviction to obey God's word because Jesus said it. And if we believe that Jesus was God, then we need to obey what he said. And a conviction will motivate you to do that. But we know that sometimes we fail, and when we fail, things don't go the way they should. And sometimes we may not fail, but things just don't work out the way we think they should. And there's difficulties in life. You need to have a conviction to hold on to the light. To hold on to the light. It's not saying that there is no sin. If we say that because we're saved, we no longer have sin, that would mean that we are being self-deceived, that we're deceiving ourselves. And it says there's no truth in us. God's word is not in you if you believe that, because his word will refute that. We're not sinless, but we're sin conscious. When truth enters, sin is revealed. So there is this joy in having your sins forgiven. But there's still a little bit of grief that we all share in knowing ourselves and how much sin remains that we need to continually work on. And he goes into this confession. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We use that verse to share the gospel with people who aren't saved, which is good. But remember, this was written to the Christians. Because they have a sin problem. We still have a sin problem. And we still need to confess our sins to a holy God. And the great thing about that is because God is light, because God is who he is, because his character is real and true, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. His word is true. He does not change it. You can count on his character. And his character says he is faithful and he will forgive your sins. He is just. He is going to do what is right. Well, how can a holy God forgive my sins? How is that right? Well, that's where we get in the chapter 2 in the first couple verses. My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. 
How great that would be. But, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Because Jesus Christ came and died on the cross and sacrificed, he paid the price. So, a holy God is just and forgiven me because the price has been paid. And understanding that truth, no matter what bad things are happening, I need to confess my sins and hold on to the, on to the light and trust in God's word. This life is but a vapor compared to the eternity that will be with our Savior. So sometimes things are difficult. Hold on to the light. Don't waver in your faith. Don't waver in the truth of who God is. Because a conviction that God is light will lead you to the conviction that you need to hold on to that light. God is light. Think about that today. What light means. What character is revealed about God through that light? And what does that mean for your obedience? What is your conviction about doing His Word? Truly living your life for God. And what is your conviction about holding on to God? Holding on to the light in the tough times. In the difficult days. In times that we don't know for sure what's happening. I'm going to close with a story from Chuck Swindoll about the hammer, the file, and the furnace. It was Mr. Rutherford who said in the midst of very painful trials and heartaches, praise God for the hammer, the file, and the furnace. Well, let's think about that. The hammer is a useful and handy instrument. It is an essential tool if nails are ever to be driven into place. Each blow forces them to bite deeper as the hammer's head points and pounds. But if the nail had feelings, and if the nail had intelligence, it would give us another side of the story. To the nail, the hammer is a brutal, relentless master. An enemy who loves to beat it into submission. That is the nail's view of the hammer. And it's correct, except for one thing. The nail tends to forget that both it and the hammer are held by the same workman. The workman decides whose head will be pounded out of sight and which hammer will be used to do the job. This decision is the sovereign right of the carpenter. Let the nail be reminded that it and the hammer are held by the same workman. And its resentment will fade as it yields to the carpenter without complaint. The same analogy holds true for the metal that endures the rasp of the file and the blast of the furnace. If the metal forgets that it and the tools are objects of the same craftsman's care 
it will build up hatred and resentment. The metal must keep in mind that the craftsman knows what he's doing and is doing what is best. Heartaches and disappointment are like the hammer, the file, and the furnace. They come in all shapes and sizes, an unfulfilled romance, a lingering illness, an untimely death, an unachieved goal in life, a broken home or marriage, a severed friendship, a wayward and rebellious child, a personal medical report that requires immediate surgery, a failing grade at school, a depression that simply won't go away, a habit you can't seem to break. Sometimes heartaches come suddenly. Other times they appear over the passing of many months, slowly as the erosion of the earth. Do I say to a nail that has begun to resent the blow of the hammer, are you a nail? Are you at the brink of despair, thinking that you cannot bear another day of heartache? As difficult as it may be for you to believe this today, the Master knows what He is doing. Your Savior knows your breaking point. The bruising and crushing and melting process is designed to reshape you, not ruin you. Your value is increasing the longer he lingers over you. God is light. So walk in the light and hold on to the light. Give God the glory for everything. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your words and your encouragement to us as we strive to be obedient to you, as we strive to fellowship with one another in a way that's pleasing and honoring to you. Father, help us to regularly confess our sins before you so that we are right with you. Thank you for being a God who is light, that we can count on, who is just, who promises to forgive us. Not because of what we've done, but because of what you have done. Not because any sacrifices that we've made or things that we do that makes us worthy, but because you made the sacrifice to make us worthy. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for forgiveness. Help us in our convictions about who you are that we will walk And hold on to you like never before. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.